You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 26, airing on April 13th, 2012. You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And I'm Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, on the last episode, we had summarized the conference that we had this year in the Global Center Ensure for Women Justice and Justice. 2012 is over. It is. And uh, so if you missed it, go back and take a listen to episode number 25, because that leads right into our topic today. And our guest today, and I'm going to let you uh, get right, uh, get us started right. on that, Sandy. And uh, and then before we do, actually before we do that, let me uh, let me jump in with the contact information here for those of you who maybe are listening for the first time and wanting to learn more about how you can study the issues and educate yourself and your organization around the issues that will help you to be. Uh, 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 part of our team to end human trafficking. And as you're listening today, if you have questions for us and f- or for our guest, please give us a call. You can reach us at 714-966-6361 and we will respond to you and we will address them on a future show. And of course, you can always email us at the Global Center for Women and Justice at gcwj at vanguard.edu. And that's a great way to reach out to us with comments or questions. And so, uh, Sandy, I think it's uh, time for us to yep. uh, introduce our guest today. So in the last podcast, I talked about the, the panel on Saturday afternoon at Insured Justice 2012 that was moderated by Judge um, Doug Hajimonji here in Orange County. Uh, Carissa Phelps, our, our victim who became survivor and now an advocate, was on the panel. And then we had two prosecutors, Teresa Lowry from Las Vegas and Tamara Ross from San Bernardino. And Tamara um, is, was raised in Tallahassee, Florida. You will hear that when she talks to us and has a degree in journalism from Florida A&M and also a JD at the University of Southern California Law School in Los Angeles. And she began her career as a deputy district attorney for San Bernardino County, prosecuting a variety of misdemeanor and felony cases. But since 2005, Tamara has been assigned to the juvenile division where she developed a strong interest in cases involving sexually exploited youth. Her insights into the issue and vocalization about the lack of treatment resources for children arrested for prostitution activity led to the development of the San Bernardino County Coalition Against Sexual Exploitation case, a multi-agency coalition with the primary tasks of ending sexual exploitation within the county and providing effective restoration options for its victims. Tamara, welcome to Ending Human Trafficking. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. And you were a fabulous guest on our panel, and uh, we want to thank you now for participating in Insured Justice this year. Oh, it was my pleasure. It was um, a great opportunity to be there and to interact with the other panelists and, and the audience members. 
Well, uh, when I first um, met you, I was at an event in San Bernardino, and then later you participated in a subject matter expert panel. And both times we talked about who that child is that you are prosecuting. And I always thought the prosecutor was the bad guy until I met you. Just, to, just you know, I watched too much Law & Order. I'm sorry. So well, Law & Order was supposed to be the good guy. That's right. You're right. That's right. Um, so, so tell us about your job and how you developed this interest in um, sexually exploited youth. What? Well, as a prosecutor um, assigned to juvenile division, of course, all of my cases involve juveniles. So um, we see juveniles who commit all variety of crime. But in 2000, I had, I had actually been a juvenile prosecutor when I first started in 2000. And then I was reassigned to that division in 2005. And that was the first time that I saw girls coming in charged with lording for prostitution. And the first one or two, I really didn't pay any attention to except to have that same thought. So many people think like, what is she doing, you know, out Mm -hmm. on the street? That's, that's weird. But I just thought of it like any other case. Okay. You're breaking the law. There has to be a consequence. It's just a six month misdemeanor. So go home and be on probation or whatever little thing that, that we do. But about, the, I think the third one came through, and it was a 16-year-old girl. And I just, for some reason, uh, it just hit me like, this is really wrong. What What is going on where a 16-year-old child is out on the streets in the in the very uh, not a nice part of town? And I just started thinking about myself at 16 and other girls that I knew at 16. And I know that the stereotype is that, you know, these girls are fast. At least that's what we used to say in the 80s growing up. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, you know, I know a lot of fast girls. They weren't charging for sex. They were sleeping with the football team or whomever, you know, that that was the, the rumor about them. But I, I didn't know any any child who just jumped up one day and said, I think I want to be a prostitute. I think I want to go to the worst part of town where all the, the crackheads and people are, and I want to just walk them down the street without any safety net, without anybody protecting me, and I, and I just want to sell my body for money. Mm. And when I thought about it, I just thought about being a 16-year-old girl, I, it just hit me that that's not what's going on here. And I thought I used to think that all of the the movies and the stereotypes about pimps were just exaggerations. That it had, it had, that was how it was in the '70s, and it wasn't like that anymore. But um, I started doing a little research. It didn't take me more than a day to realize, well, she's being pimped, and that's what's happening here because there's no way she could expect to be safe out there. Mm. And um, I started talking to the, her parents, and then we were seeing more and more kids being arrested for this and as I was talking to their families and some of the attorney their their attorneys their defense attorneys were allowing me to talk to the girls it was just blatantly clear to me that these girls were in trouble that this was not um, sexual promiscuity on their part that this was a whole different uh, type of, of, of thing and and they were being violated and which led me to my next thought which 
well, what are we doing about it? Because as a juvenile, in juvenile court in California, and I'm sure in all, throughout the, the United States, our goal isn't so much to punish children like it would be to, for an adult, but it's to have them address their, their wrong and then to have them take accountability for their wrong, but to rehabilitate them because we don't want them to come back. And mm-hmm. so our biggest goal is truly rehabilitation. And since these children were being arrested and are cited, they were coming to court for loitering for prostitution, um, I needed to be concerned with, well, what are we going to do to help this help them get out of being prostituted? And, you know, of course, it took me a while to come, come around to the full scope of what, what was really happening. I'm viewing them as, as fully as victims and as being prostituted versus prostituting. But, you know, that was a process. But at the same time, I still immediately thought, what are we doing to help these children to, to recover? And that's where the feminist or womanist in me roared up mm-hmm. because we had so many programs for boys and for, you know, the gang entrenched children, which is, they need that. We need that. It, but it just felt to me, I, I could tell that we weren't doing anything. We weren't doing anything for rehabilitation for these girls. I started calling around saying, okay, I know they're on probation to you, probation officer X, but what, what kind of counseling is, is this child getting? What steps are being taken to protect the child from who's pimping them? H- have you been looking into who that person is? And it was like no one even knew what I was talking about. And it, it, so I knew then that, you know, something had to change. And I started being very vocal in my office about it and with the judge. And the judge um, at the time listened to me and so did uh, my supervisor. And that's basically how at, at some point, more and more people started changing their their opinion and viewing the children differently, and we created the coalition. My my boss boss did the DA um, Michael Ramos. So that's that was the process. So when and it's still a process. I'm still learning. <laughs> and and I I think that you've identified so many really important aspects of this understanding who this child is and what their history is. I love it that you've identified the purpose of our juvenile justice system is rehabilitation, not um, the same as our criminal justice system, which is punishment. But um, when when we were in a conversation early on in this, uh, you described a day when a 12-year-old that you were prosecuting turned around and asked for your card. Um, Tell me about that. This girl, um, wow, she, she, we hadn't had someone that young, you know, before. And I, again, her grandmother, she was living with her grandmother and I immediately started asking questions of her grandmother and I, and her mother came to court and found out a lot about the family, just talking to them. I wasn't allowed to speak to the child. I'm the person who's prosecuting them. That's really not the right word to use, but I'm using it because that's that's the one that we'll all understand. But, um, you know, I'm the one who's affecting the charges against the child. So their attorney is allowed to speak to them, the defense attorney, but I'm not. Um, so anyway, but I found out a lot about her from talking to her, her family. And, I, and at some point, you know, her attorney wanted her had a different goal in mind for what should happen 
than I had in mind. And I just, I, I set hearings to argue about it, and it was a really long, drawn-out process. So basically, I think about three or four times, this child heard me um, tell, her, tell what I believed to be her story, even though I hadn't really spoken to her directly. She heard me tell the, tell the court, this is a protection issue. This is a child who has truly been neglected by her mother and is lost and is trying to find that, that love, but, but she's find, looking for it in the wrong places, and she needs help. And we're trying to help her, and we're trying to protect her, but she's, she's a neglected, emotionally neglected child. And I started telling what I thought to be her story. And it was, it was a moment for me where I had to build a lot of courage because some of those times her mother and grandmother were sitting there, mm-hmm. and I knew that some of the things I was saying would you know, hurt particularly her mother, but it needed to be said. And by the time the whole thing was over, the court, um, the court, I think the court found what, what I was asking the court to do. I don't even remember at this point. So much has happened since. But in the, in the end, the child asked her attorney, may I speak to Mrs. Ross? And her attorney gave her permission, gave me permission to speak to her. And I was, I went in, she was in custody. So I went into the holding area and I, you know, I said, hi. And I asked her, can I give you a hug? She said, yes. And then she told me, she said, I feel like you're the only one who understands me. And I really want to, I want to thank you for what you've been saying. And she just really was very appreciative. And she asked me, can I call you, you know, if I'm having problems? Because she really felt like she was being honest, that she felt that she would run away from a placement and which she has, unfortunately, but um, she she and I connected at that moment, you know, and I, that's, it really felt rewarding because I felt like the things that I was saying, I was just hoping that I was right, you know, that I was reading between the lines of what was being said to me and for her to, to confirm that I was right helped me to feel like I'm on the right direction here. I'm going down the right path. And even though I'm making arguments to ask for something she does, she says she doesn't want in the end, she was appreciative. It's like, you know, children, they they don't they they say they want their freedom right, but if you give them too much freedom, they feel like you you don't care about them. <laughs> how, so. many, how, how many kids do you have, Tamara? I have two. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, and the younger they are, the more they really want to be protected. You know, so. Mm. So so then this brings up the other aspect of this issue. You're dealing with the kids, but what happened to her pimp? Her pimp was prosecuted. He's put well. He was one pimp that she was found with, um, and he. But this particular guy is in in prison now for over a hundred years, over a hundred year sentence. Okay, so so the process of of putting him away required that she be able to um, be a witness, right? Yes. I didn't handle that case, though. I coordinated with the, the attorney in our office who prosecutes the adults. And, you know, we did, did a lot of coordination and um, that her attorney was on board. You got to have all everybody working on this, this aspect. Oh, that ca- and, collaboration word again, huh? <laughs> yes. And actually, it's been a while. So um, that first conversation with her, I that I talked about, that was before we had a pimp, I believe. I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I think could be wrong, but she'd, she'd come through a couple times. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, she'd, she'd been in and, in and out. But um, what, the second time that she was arrested, it was 
with a pimp or the pimp was arrested right after that because they could they found where he was and and it, uh, if if i'm um if i remember correctly um i believe there's been some discussion about how difficult it is to prosecute the pimps because this is what the community says well why don't we put the bad guys away well we have to have um witness testimony and if we don't keep the girls um secure they're they're gone because so many of them they right. run when we place them and then right. we lose the case is that correct right right i mean we're not talking about kids who were in molested at their uncle's home and the uncle is arrested and so they feel safe and they're and they're at home and so that you know they're around we're talking about a lot of a lot of these girls not all but a lot of them had issues at home and they 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 run they they run away they 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 aren't stable emotionally and so you you know in the united states if you if you charge someone with a crime you have to have a witness to the crime or you have have to have evidence and in this type of a case you the only evidence is the person who says i was i was um pimped by this by this man i mean Surely there can be some other, there's some, there can be cases that are brought with other evidence. If there's a lot of online evidence or a lot of um, records to show, but the vast majority of these cases that you're not going to have those records and the strongest evidence is going to be the child explaining what happened and, and, and explaining to the, to the jury, you know, the whole, the whole case. I mean, of course, we'll have other evidence to, to corroborate the child, but you need the child witness. That's just a part of our our constitution. If someone accuses you of a crime, you, you have a right to face your accuser. So we can't prosecute we can't prosecute most of these pimps without the aid of the child. And then, you know, half the time you don't want to, or we don't want to harm the child mm. emotionally. So then there's even that, there's that, well, even if the child is at home or stabilized in a place where they can testify, is it, is this something that we want to have this child do or is the child willing to testify? But for the vast majority of them, unless, unless they're stabilized, you're not going to have a prosecution because they're going to disappear before it's time to testify. Because for one, they're afraid. Of course they're afraid. And why would you testify against someone who you know has the power to to really hurt you? Mm. And and that then becomes the place where our our dialogue is so complicated because if we don't provide really good victim services, um, we're not going to have good witnesses so that we can put the bad guy away. And that is truly the heart of the matter. I mean, really. I, our our county, at least the people who matter in our county, the people who actually do, handle these cases in our in our um, current district attorney, really are at the point now where we don't want to have to use the criminal justice system. We don't want to have to use the police to or the courts to um, to enforce the ch- the child thing, to put terms on the child, to make the child stay and be rehabilitated but there's not that's the that's the best option we have right now we don't have a truly concerted 
full wraparound type of um, victim service available. There's not a place where I can send the child where I know the child will be safe and the child will get services that are are good and geared towards her specific needs. That is not a, a court court situation. I mean, well, I take that back. There are voluntary places a child can go. And the children of the can, night. Can and you then explain we're hearing about a couple others? Can you explain but, the the complication with a voluntary um, yeah, placement? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, again, we're talking about emotionally disturbed children who have gotten a, some taste of freedom as well. They're not. They're not volunteering. Most of them do not volunteer to go someplace where there's structure and there's adults and they have to follow the rules. Mm. They just even I, I, now I can't. You have to have a psychologist to explain to you why why that is the case, but. Um, that that's just the case. A lot of them aren't going to volunteer when they've they feel like they they've kind of been they've been manipulated and brainwashed so much to where they feel that what they were doing was a taste of freedom, you know. So, and having to live under, I mean, to me, a pimp's rules are, are still rules. You know what I mean? You're still living under rules. You're mm-hmm. being told that you can't come back home, you can't eat, you can't you can't take a bath, you can't sleep unless you have slept with. 10 men tonight, you know, or if you brought back so much money tonight. So you, you, those are rules, you know, mm-hmm. but for some reason, these girls feel like that's, that's freedom. And, but going to a voluntary placement where there are rules where they, you know, can't have boys or men over, or they can't just leave when they want to, they have to stay there on site. That's not something most volunteer to do. Even and- when, even when they, are um their 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 safety is threatened some do don't get me wrong we've had some go volunteer and do very well but the vast majority do not so that leaves you with you you have to try to protect the child we have a statutory mandate to protect the child mm-hmm. as, as law enforcement we do now there are a lot of social service people who who don't of course, if you work for Children Protective Services or Children and Family Services, you do. But I'm just talking about your average person, your average member of a church who wants to help. Mm-hmm. They don't have a mandate to protect the child. So, but I do. Mm-hmm. So when someone tells me, well, you should just let the child go, and when they decide to um, rehabilitate, then, then be there for them, that's no. I, I that would be against what the the state requires me to do and my own, uh, I don't want to say moral fabric because I don't think either either way is immoral, but it just goes against my own. If I have some power to protect this child, I'm going to use it. And I, I think, um, you know, Friday night when Jeremy Combine uh, from New York City's Children's Village, um, when mm-hmm. he talked about that, uh, he he really made it, very, very clear that these kids have had their trust violated. So mm. why should they trust um, trust us and say, we're going to take care of you, come and stay with us, or do this program or that program? Right. Um, they're not going to be easy to work with. Uh, That's so, a very good point. And, and he told us, prevention isn't working, so we are obligated to protect our kids. Right. And and I think I think it is um, more than just a legal mandate. I think it is you. I don't think it's too strong for you to use the idea of a moral compass. 
But you know why I, I hesitate? Because I know people, I know victim advocates who, who have said and will say, I mean, you can see it in, in movies, who actually go out of their way to protect children, but then they give the child the choice to, to leave. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the kids, their brains aren't done. Remember, we've talked about that already. So, right. Um, I'm just saying I, I don't want to judge people too harshly and say that's immoral for you to let that child walk out the door yeah, knowing yeah. what she's going to do. But for me, I, it's not in my, my moral fabric. I, I will I will be the mama bear and I will say you are still a child. And as long as you're a child, I have the right to secure you. Yeah. It's my duty and my obligation. I like that. And since I'm in the law, you know, since I have the law helping me to do that, then I, I can do that. I can detain the child. Tamara, I'm really struck by your the leadership that you've shown in the capacity for what you do. I think that there's the stereotype probably that, you know, prosecutors care about getting wins and winning cases. And I'm really struck by your leadership and the love that you show to care for children while working within the scope of the law and your legal requirements. And I'm curious that if other prosecutors are listening to this, what advice would you have for others in the legal profession to really be able to certainly work within the scope of that that the law uh, requires, but but to really look at this from a caring standpoint toward children? Hmm. You know, being a prosecutor in the end, if the, if this is a job that you you, you do and it wasn't just like a stepping stone that you do for a few years and you want to get out. But if it's a job that you really care about, it, it, it really boils down to people who care about victims. Mm. So when you're prosecuting an adult for committing a crime, it's not, yes, you see the prosecutors railing against the, the, the accused murderer or the robber or the burglar, but they're railing because they're the voice for the victim. Mm-hmm and the voice for the state to say, we're going to hold you accountable for, for victimizing people. And gratefully, in, under our juvenile laws, it's a very clear uh, mandate for us to care about the child's best interest, the child who has come before the court for violating one of the laws. We have to care about the best interest. That's the vast majority of what our conversations are about in court. Um, most of what we do is, 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 you know, having the child and talking to the attorney about what um, crime they should admit or what the punishment should be, the, the punishment slash rehabilitation aspect is vast majority of it, not what the charge is or what, whether or not they should admit. So I think that, number one, again, it comes back to your own moral fiber. If you are a prosecutor or any, any attorney and y y you're you care, you know, about victims of crime, then the law is right there to help you to, to use in order to effectuate the, the best result. And it's just a matter sometimes because I understand that sometimes the culture of where you are may not support the feelings or the emotional feelings where you, like, for instance, I, I felt like, wow, I wonder how my boss is going to react when I tell him I think that we should be doing more to protect the children that we're prosecuting. But my boss was very supportive. You know, of course, we're supposed to rehabilitate these kids, and if the probation department isn't doing that, then we need to try something different.
And I, I must say, I'm, San Bernardino County Probation Department has totally changed and really grabbed this issue as well, and, they, and they've really done a great job to try to help these children. But in the end, it takes, uh, it takes the, the attorney has to have that moral backbone to say, this is just what I think is right, and you find the person within your office who can support you, you know, you bring it up in conversations over, over lunch or someplace where you think it, it, will, it will go over better, <laughs> that it, you're not in the middle of court, <laughs> and you find those who are going to support you and um, go with it. Luckily for us in California, the San Francisco District Attorney and the Alameda County District Attorneys, they really led the way 10, 15 years ago on this. So they're there are other examples that, as a prosecutor, one can turn to to convince the other prosecutors that this is this is within our realm. This isn't defense work. This is our work. Mm, um, the, so I don't know if that helps. Um, there's so many attorneys come from so many different backgrounds, but as, as a prosecutor, the law is on our side to help these kids. It, it just takes um, changing the perspective. I mean. I read a, a Dallas Sergeant Fassett once uh, wrote an article, and he said, you know, <clears throat> we prosecute child molesters all the time. You have a 15-year-old girl and her grandfather molest her, does have lewd acts on her. We immediately look at him and we say, what a dirty, dirty old man. We're arresting him. We're going to protect her. But now if you find out that it wasn't the grandfather, it was the, the neighbor, and he left $50 on the bedside table after the act was over, and she took it, then all of a sudden, now we're looking at her like, like she's got the problem. Mm-hmm. And we're not looking at him as much. We're like, oh, he's a, he's a John. It's a misdemeanor. you know. And now look at this dirty girl. And that one analogy really helped me to say, wow, you know what, she's a victim of, of crime. We, 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 molest, uh, we uh, prosecute child molesters all the time and protect their victims. And she's a, you know, they're a child. So you can't hold the child responsible for this sexual act against them, even if they do ask for money or accept money, you know, for it. That shouldn't even be relevant because a lot of children do take um, candy and gifts Etc. From um, child molesters, that's Which, how they win win them over. You know, that's the grooming process. Exactly the grooming process, and and again, we go back to child development and recognize that these kids are in a place of of development that right. they're not equipped to make those kinds of choices. So that's you know, why we year protect old women. Them you know, aren't really always equipped. I mean, I, I, I have friends who, who, you know, in college were debating, you know, not should I take money from a man, but, you know, hey, I, I might want to make some extra money. I wonder if I should go be a stripper. People debate all, all the time in their own minds, grown women, um, what level of intimacy they're willing to give and, and not give you know, for different things. So for a 15-year-old or 16-year-old or 17-year-old child or younger um, to have a pimp come along, shower her with affection or care and say, hey, you've already had sex, so why don't you make money from it? It's a stupid girl who doesn't make money from it. That's an easy 
that's an easy, logical line for her to, to follow. Here's a person who's suggesting it, who she respects, who she admires, and he's not going to look down on her for doing it. So, you know, it's, it's not illogical in that sense. But what, what, what he doesn't tell her and what a lot of women don't realize when they go down that line or children don't realize is the spiritual and emotional toll that that type of exchange takes. Mm. Our time is up. Tamara, I can't believe it's gone already. We're going to have to have you come back uh, so we can talk about some more of these issues and get updates. I appreciate your um, leadership, your voice, your advocacy, and your commitment to ending the commercial sexual exploitation of children in San Bernardino. But I think your voice will reach way beyond San Bernardino. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. It's really fun. And Sandy and Tamara, boy, just what a great example of a conversation that we should be having more of and have more people. I just hope so many people can hear this conversation today and hear Tamara's perspective and her experience. And uh, I want to thank folks who have already been online and visited us on iTunes and left a comment about the show so we can get more coverage of this podcast on iTunes and have more people find out about this issue. If you've already done that, thank you so much. Uh, If you are listening for the first time, or maybe you've been listening for a while to this show and it's been helpful to you, we'd love to hear your comments on iTunes. Uh, Just visit iTunes, do a search for Ending Human Trafficking, and you can find us. And if you'd leave a comment for us, we would really appreciate it. It'll help us to reach more people to hear this important message, not only this message today, but in future episodes that we'll continue to hear. And of course, you can always reach out to us with comments or questions about this show. And the best way to do that is to give us a call at 714-966-6361. Or you can always email us at the Global Center for Women and Justice. And that email address is gcwj at vanguard.edu. And of course, Sandy, we are uh, housed under Vanguard University of Southern California. So thanks to Vanguard for helping sponsor us as well. All right. We'll look forward to seeing everyone again in two weeks. Uh, We want to thank Tamara again for being here today. And thank you as the listener for listening to us. We hope to reach out to you online. And thank you for studying the issues, being a voice, and helping us end human trafficking. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye.